This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled First Chronicles. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 26. And as you make your way to the 26th chapter of First Chronicles, I should take a moment to remind you that we find ourselves in a section of Scripture which is focused on the days when King David was helping the priests and the Levites uh, to create a structure of leadership in order to make sure that you know they were all doing their part uh, as they set out to accomplish the entire sacrificial services uh, which took place at the uh, at the tabernacle and then afterwards at the temple uh, which was there in Jerusalem. It'll help us to remember that, uh, that David first encouraged the descendants of Levi uh, to revisit the Levitical divisions that the Lord ordained. During the days of Moses, we find all that spelled out in the book of Leviticus. And he helped them to establish a hierarchy of leadership so that every Levite could then begin to accomplish their calling, whatever their calling was. And, and this was all uh, you know, uh, basically presented according to the specific instructions that Moses gave to the descendants of Levi's three sons. Uh, so, so then we've seen how King David helped the descendants of Aaron uh, to create a structure of leadership by appointing 24 courses uh, of priests. And, and, and these 24 courses of priests, it included this yearly rotation of priests who were, who were divided up so that they, they could all help uh, to accomplish the sacrif- uh, sacrificial system. And you know, much like the Levites, uh, the, 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 uh, this leadership structure was put into place so that the priests uh, could all do their part as they all worked together to accomplish the priestly responsibilities uh, there at the tabernacle. Uh, well, then uh, in our text last week, we also learned about the way that David helped the Levites to organize a structure of leadership for the worship team. And, and, and we saw how the mus- musicians were uh, then uh, divided up uh, and, and given responsibilities as they set out to accomplish their calling. And much like the priests, uh, the musicians were divided up into 24 courses as uh, the skilled musicians were led by 24 leaders who uh, you know, divided up their daily responsibilities. And now here we are in our text tonight. We learn about the way in which some of the Levites were actually called to guard the gates there uh, on Temple Mount, while others were called to oversee the treasury where the tithes uh, and the offerings would be stored. And as we make our way through the text before us tonight, well, it's my hope that we'll all realize that the gates and and the treasury and, and all of this was being placed under guard so that the temple might be properly secured. And in similar fashion, we also have a security team here at Calvary South Austin. And, and the reason why? Well, it's due to the fact that we want to make sure that our church is a safe place to worship the Lord. And with this as the goal, I just want to take uh, some time to consider the security measures that King David was establishing uh, for the Temple of Solomon. And so with, with that, let's pick up our study of Ezra's account, which is found here in First Chronicles chapter 26. If you would look with me here, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Ezra writes, Concerning the divisions of the gatekeepers of the Korahites, uh, Meshelemiah, the son of Kor, of the sons of Asaph, and the sons of Meshelemiah were Zechariah the firstborn, Jediel the second, Zebediah the third, uh, Yanthniel uh, the fourth, uh, Elam the fifth, uh, Yehonahanan the sixth, Elihonai the seventh. Moreover, the sons of Obed Edom were Shemaiah the firstborn, uh, Jehozabad the second, uh, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nethanel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, 
Peothai the eighth, uh, for God blessed him. Also, Shemaiah, his son, uh, were sons born who governed their father's houses because they were men of great ability. Uh, the sons of Shemaiah were Othni, uh, Raphael, Obed, and Elzabad, whose brothers uh, Elihu and Semachiah were able men. All these were the, uh, of the sons of Obed-Edom, they and their sons and their brethren, able men with strength for the work, 62 of Obed-Edom. And Meshlemiah had sons and, and brethren, 18 able men. Uh, also, Hosa uh, of the children of Merari had sons, Shimri the first, for though he was not the firstborn, his father made him the first, Hilkiah the second, Tebaliah the third, Zechariah the fourth, all the sons and brethren of Hosa were thirteen. Among these were the divisions of the gatekeepers among the chief men, having duties just like their brethren to serve in the house of the Lord. Here in these verses we learn about these descendants of Levi who were called to guard the gates of the temple. You might not know this, but the temple of Solomon was enclosed with an outer wall, which actually had four gates on the western side. Then there was a second wall uh, inside of that wall, which separated the outer court from the inner court. And that wall included gates on the north, the south, and the east side uh, of the structure. And not only that, but the inner court of the temple was also surrounded by a perimeter wall, which included gates on the north, south, and eastern side. Uh, And according to Ezra, all of these gates were guarded by gatekeepers. There were gatekeepers posted at every single one of these gates. And for the sake of clarity, uh, it'll help you to know that the Hebrew word which was rendered gatekeeper, we find it there in verse 1 as well as in verse 12. Uh, This word was used of those who were in charge of monitoring a gate, including its operation as well as its regulation. According to Ezra, the men who were chosen, well, they were able-bodied men who had the strength necessary for this job. And in order to understand the, the, the need for strength here, it'll help you to know that the gatekeepers, they were required to regulate uh, as well as restrict access uh, to Temple Mount. So sometimes they were just making sure that you're the, the right person who can go through this gate. Sometimes they had to deal with somebody that wasn't allowed to go in and they had to deal with you know, someone who might take issue with that. I'll remind you that Solomon's temple, it included an outer court as well as an inner court, followed by then the temple proper, uh, which then uh, uh, included the Holy of Holies. And while the outer court was accessible to every Israelite who was ceremonially uh, clean, uh, further access to the inner court and then the temple court and, and, and so on and so forth, the further you went in, the more restrictive it became. And so that you know you had to be the right person to go through this gate, otherwise the gatekeeper was going to restrict your access. I think that David sums it up beautifully in the twenty fourth psalm there he declares, "Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessings from the Lord." and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Now as we consider this song of praise, it seems to me here that that King David was first acknowledging the fact that there were spiritual standards which were required for those who wanted to enter the gates of the temple. You had to be ceremonially clean. 
uh, to enter into uh, the temple grounds. And, and you know, the reason why here is because the glory of God was manifest there on Temple Mount. And you can't have sin standing in the presence of God's glory. And so the gatekeepers were there to keep people safe, to keep people from entering into restricted areas. And they were there to just uh, guard access, and, and, and that was their task. With that being the case, David raised up these gatekeepers who, who, again, were tasked with the responsibility of regulating and restricting access, all in an attempt to protect those who were ascending to the hill of the Lord. And in this way, they, they were protecting the people from the wrath of Almighty God. And, and listen, archaeological evidence of these restrictions were actually found back in 1871, just outside of the Alatim Gate, which is there on Temple Mount, uh, the, an ancient tablet uh, from Herod's temple was unearthed. And the tablet reads this, No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary, and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. <laughs> That's, they had this sign posted up uh, at all the gates uh, there uh, as, it, as you entered into the sanctuary. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus also mentions these signs uh, it's in his uh, one of his books that where he declares, Upon it stood pillars at equal distances from one another, declaring the law of purity, some in Greek and some in Roman letters, that no foreigner should go within the sanctuary uh, for that second court, uh, speaking of the court of the temple, for that second temple was called the sanctuary and was ascended to by 14 steps from the first court. Uh, so uh, according to Josephus, this uh, ancient historian, these signs were up uh, before entering into the sanctuary so that you understood uh, you know, that, that you have to be pure to enter in and you can't be a foreigner. Uh, simply put, there were signs that surrounded Herod's temple warning those who were approaching the temple of God so that those who enter in would make sure that they could actually do this without dying. And, and with that being the case, you know, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there were these gatekeepers who were there at the gates regulating and restricting access uh, to the courts of the temple. <clears throat> with all that in mind, I would just point out that isn't it nice to know that we can just enter boldly into the throne room of grace, <laughs> that there are no restrictive signs uh, as we spend time with the Lord in prayer. We can just freely enter in and boldly enter in without fear of dying because Jesus already died for us. Amen. Well, let's continue to consider the gatekeepers that we find here in First Chronicles chapter 26. If you would, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 13. Here we learn that they cast lots for each gate, the small as well as the great, according to their father's house. The lot for the east gate fell to Shelemiah. Uh, then they cast lots for his son Zechariah, a wise counselor, and his lot came out for the north gate to Obed-Edom, the south gate, and to his sons, the storehouse, to Shupim and Hosa, the lot came out for the west gate with the Shelekath gate uh, on the ascending highway, watchman opposite watchman. Well, here in these verses, we find Ezra. He's reminding his readers about the way in which the, the lot was used once again in order to divvy up the duties for those who are serving as gatekeepers. And I want to remind you that the lot was a way that the people of God in ancient times sought the directions of the Lord prior to the, to the day of Pentecost. You know, the, the day of Pentecost, uh, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, this was the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. 
And so thankfully for us here in the church age, we don't need lots anymore. We don't need to draw straws. We don't need to cast lots. We don't need to, you know, put the, uh, you know, the, the fleece out. You know, we have the Holy Spirit living within us and guiding us. Those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've received the indwelling Spirit of God. And the indwelling Spirit of God has promised to to lead us into all truth. Not only that, but listen, we've also received the fullness of God's Word. And it's the fullness of God's Word that enables us to then test the spirits. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, not, it's, it's difficult for us at times to, to know, is this the Holy Spirit leading me? Is this my own flesh? Is this, you know, an evil spirit that's, that, that's you know, attempting to deceive me? It can be difficult uh, to, to make sense of all of that. And, and so that's why we have the Word of God, and we use the Word of God to test the Spirit, so that we're able to, to discern the difference between you know, the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, versus our own flesh, or maybe it's a deceptive lie uh, of demons who are here to deceive us. The Word of God can help us to sort all of that out. Well, it's important for us to, to realize that the Spirit of the Lord uh, has actually provided the leaders of our church with the supernatural gifts that we need so that we can uh, begin to divvy up the duties here at our church and so that every Christian is able to discover and accomplish uh, their calling in Christ Jesus. This is the, the discipleship uh, that is supposed to be happening within every church. Listen, it may be that the Lord is calling you to serve as a doorkeeper, uh, and maybe, maybe the Lord wants you to stand at the front door and, and welcome people into our church as they arrive. Or it's possible that the Lord wants you to join the usher ministry and, and help to provide security uh, for those who are here. Uh, there are also digital gates that we have at our church. You know, the di- digital gates, you know, it's the social media, the websites, these are all digital gates into our church. And, and, and it's possible that the Lord wants you to uh, help uh, maintain these uh, digital gates by joining the media team. And, and with that being the case, I encourage every Christian just, just to spend some time talking with the leaders at our church. If you're not serving anywhere, uh, talk with the leaders here so that, that you can receive the instructions that you need uh, to begin serving the Lord uh, according to his calling. Well, with this, this as our goal, uh, let's continue to consider the ways in, in which the gatekeepers then received their appointment. And if you would look with me here, First Chronicles chapter 26, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 17. Here Ezra writes, On the east were six Levites, on the north four each day, on the south four each day, and for the storehouse two by two. As for the parbar uh, on the west, there were four on the highway and two at the parbar. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers among the sons of Korah and among the sons of Merari. Uh, now here in these verses we find Ezra, he's summing up these divisions of the gatekeepers uh, and he's helping us to understand how many gatekeepers were stationed uh, at each of the gates, specifically uh, you know, the ones that were uh, there on, on the highway that led into that first uh, set of gates. Uh, and these were all called to guard the gates there on Temple Mount. They were there to guard the gates. And as we consider their daily responsibilities, I have no doubt that, that this position was a thankless job. Uh, and, and listen, I say this based on my own life experience. Uh, you might not know this, but I actually spent uh, some time working as a bouncer. And, and I must confess that being a bouncer, it had its moments, you know, because there were some exciting times. Uh, you know, but for the most part, you know, it's like the, the, the job of a bouncer isn't, you know, just always getting to, you know, uh, manhandle someone out of the club. You know, it, the, the, for the most part, you know, my job was regulating and restricting access to the front door. Uh, you know, and, and once people, you know, made it past, uh, you know, the, 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 the doorman, 
they disappear and they go have fun and then you're still stuck there at the door. And so that's, that's you know, the job of the bouncer, to stand there and wait for someone to come up and try to gain access, right? The majority of my night was actually spent listening to the complaints of those who didn't like the regulations. And, you know, it, it, most of my time was spent dealing with uh, the complaints of those who didn't like my restrictions. And I would look at an idea, oh, no, you're not that old, you know, this isn't you, sorry, you know, and it's just, you know, complaining the whole time. Uh, it was a thankless job. And it was boring. And, and every once in a while, a fight would break out and I had to go deal with it. But, but for the most part, it's just standing at a door and just waiting for something to happen. And, and it was thankless. Nobody ever came up and said, you're the best bouncer in the world. Thank you so much. You know, I feel so safe. No. Now, based on my experience as a bouncer, I can only imagine that the gatekeepers who were there at the temple probably spent a great deal of, uh, of their time just dealing with the complainers. What do you mean I can't come in this gate? I always come in this gate. You saw me last week, didn't you? You know, and it, it's just constant complaints. And, 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 you know, they're probably dealing with complainers every single day who didn't like the regulations. They didn't like the restrictions. They didn't like the way you said, you know, what you said to them. And, I have no doubt that the gatekeeper position was a thankless job. And, and it, it, you know, it wasn't a, a position of position, if you understand what I'm saying. You know, it wasn't like anybody just kind of like, oh, I want to grow up one day and be a gatekeeper. You know, that just sounds incredible. You know, no, it, it, was, a, it was a low job. And, and, and yet I can't help but to remember something that King David wrote in the 84th Psalm. It's in Psalm 84 where King David declares this. Now, this is the king, and he's worshiping the Lord. He says, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Consider that for a moment. Here's, here's King David saying, hey, I'd rather be a gatekeeper. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than, than to live in luxury with the wicked. It's better to spend our days humbly serving the Lord, even if it's the, the most humble of positions, than it is to live high on the hog out in the world with those who are wicked. Listen, if, if you're unable to serve the Lord because you're too busy pursuing the wealth of this world, I encourage you to realize that your pursuit will not bring the happiness that you think it's going to bring. Some of the most miserable people on the planet today are more wealthy than anybody here could ever imagine. And yet the wealth brings no joy. And yet here's this extremely wealthy king saying, I'd rather be a doorkeeper and serve the Lord in humility than have all the money in the world. It's better to be a poor servant of the Lord than a wealthy servant of Satan. And listen, we ought to be spending our time serving the Lord, and not only that, but we should also, we should also dedicate the wealth that we do have to, to serve our Savior with, with our, our treasure as well. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of 1 Chronicles chapter 26. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 20. Here Ezra goes on to write, Of the Levites, Ahijah was over the treasuries of the house of God and over the treasuries of the dedicated things. The sons of Laadan, the descendants of the Gershonites of Laadan, heads of their father's house of Laadan, the Gershonite, Jehaliel, uh, the sons of Jeheli, uh, Zetham and Joel, his brother, were over the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Of the Amramites, the Izharites, the Hebronites, and the Uzielites, 
Shebuel, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, was overseer of the treasuries. And his brethren by Eliezer were Rehabiah, the son of Jeshahiah, his son Joram, his son Zikri, his son Shelomith, his son. Uh, now, <clears throat> here in these verses, we learn about these Levites who were called to oversee the treasuries of the house of God. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the treasuries of the house of God, uh, this was the area of the temple which was used to store the wealth that had been dedicated unto the Lord. Evidence of this is found in 1 Kings chapter 7. There we learn that King Solomon took all of the silver and the gold and the furnishings and he put them into the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Simply put, uh, the treasury of the temple was the repository where the wealth which had been dedicated to the Lord would be then stored. And according to Ezra, uh, there were specific Levites who were appointed with the task of overseeing the temple treasury, which not only included the task of maintaining its inventory, uh, but this, also, uh, this oversight also included the protection of the wealth uh, which had been dedicated to the Lord. Uh, in order to further grasp the responsibility of those who were called to this position, uh, let's uh, continue making our way here through First Chronicles chapter 26. Look with me there beginning at verse 26. Here Ezra writes, This Shelemith and his brethren were over all the treasuries of the dedicated things which King David and the heads of fathers' houses, the captains over thousands and hundreds, and the captains of the army had dedicated. Some of the spoils won in battles, they dedicated to maintain the house of the Lord. And all that Samuel the seer, Saul the son of Kish, Abner the son of Ner, and Joab the son of Zeruiah had dedicated, every dedicated thing was under the hand of Shelomith and his brethren. Now here in these verses we find Ezra describing the way that the Levites were responsible for managing the treasuries, which included uh, all the gold and silver that, that David had dedicated to, to the Lord. And not only that, but this also inclu included all the spoils of war that the armies of Israel had secured as they went out and defeated the pagan nations that the Lord uh, was leading them to go and punish. It's also important to note that the spoils that they won in those battles uh, were then taken and, and, and they were dedicated and used for the task of maintaining the house of the Lord. They used the wealth uh, to maintain the house of the Lord. And, and you know, inevitably, you know, there's going to be maintenance issues. There, there's going to be repairs. There's going to be you know, things that need to be, uh, to, to, to be purchased for, for the sake of maintaining the house of the Lord. And so, you know, we, we see how this wealth was being used. Every dedicated thing which was kept there in the treasuries of the temple was used uh, to, to maintain the temple. And in similar fashion, listen, uh, the offerings that we give here at our church, uh, a portion of those offerings are used for the maintenance of this facility. You know, lights go out, things break, things need repair. Uh, and, and, you know, we got to send the, the maintenance team down to, uh, you know, to, to the hardware store to go pick up what, what's necessary. You know, things need to be cleaned and uh, all of that costs money. And, and, and so as we give money here, you know, a portion of that money is used uh, for the maintenance of our facility. Uh, and, and if you'd like to be a part of that, you can join our maintenance ministry and serve the Lord in that way. Uh, now, you guys, you guys know, I mean, you know, I'm not the pastor who's going to get up and pound the pulpit. I don't believe in guilting people into giving. I don't even believe in passing a plate because uh, I don't even want there to be appearance of, of guiltiness. Uh, at the same time, though, I also believe that every Christian has been called to be a gracious giver. And much like those Israelites who happily dedicated their wealth uh, for the maintenance of the house of the Lord, I also believe that every Christian has been called to financially support the work of the ministry here at our church. 
And according to Paul, we do this by presenting our offerings on the first day of the week. It's actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul declares on the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Christian, listen, we're all being called to give a portion of the finances that the Lord has provided to us. Uh, we're all call, called to give a portion of that here in support of our church. And, 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 and you know, uh, this covers the costs associated with the work of ministry that includes maintenance and so much more. You might not know this, but the money that we give here at Calvary South Austin, it not only covers the cost of maintenance and upkeep, but the the money we give here covers the cost of rent, electricity, and and everything else that we do here at our church. Therefore, we we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the Lord is actually calling every Christian to, to give and to give generously as we set up to support the work of the ministry here at our church. At the same time, the Lord is also calling some Christians here at our church to oversee and manage the finances that are provided uh, for this fellowship of faith. Uh, It's not what I'm called to, but we have a team here uh, that is dedicated uh, to uh, to, to, overseeing uh, the the finances uh, that come in. And... uh, uh, you, you know, I'm about to meet with the board over over next year's budget, and, and we've got a great uh, CFO here at our church, uh, one of our lead deacons, who you know puts together all the budgetary line items and, and helps me to understand the best way to to use the, the the budget that the Lord is providing. And we'll go meet with the board uh, here in a few weeks to to get that you know approved and so that we can move forward. So listen, you know, I praise the Lord that the, that God uses people for the gifts and the talents that they have. You know, some people are good at guarding gates. Other people are good, you know, at maintenance. Some people are good with, with numbers. Me, I, I, I can barely say the word numbers, uh, let alone, you know, add and subtract and all these things. I, I scramble it all in my brain. Uh, but thank God for, for the people who actually have a good sense uh, of numbers and how to, how to do budgets and whatnot. Uh, you know, we, uh, at the same time, while I do believe that every Christian is called uh, to uh, give in support of the church here. Uh, we can also be relieved to know that we don't actually have a collections team that is sent out to enforce the tithe. You know, that some churches do that. You know, some churches will, will give you a call or knock at the door and say, hey, where's our tithe? You know, where's the money that you promised? Uh, and, and, you know, uh, there, there is a bit of a biblical basis for that. And we actually find that here uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, with this as the focus, let's consider the final ministry that Ezra mentions here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there at First Chronicles chapter 26, we'll pick up our study there at verse 29. Here Ezra writes, Of the Izharites, uh, Chenaniah and his sons performed duties as officials and judges over Israel outside Jerusalem. Of the Hebronites, Hashabiah and his brethren, 1,700 able men, had the oversight of Israel on the west side of the Jordan for all the businesses, uh, for all the business of the Lord and in the service of the king. Among the Hebronites, Jeriah uh, was head of the Hebronites according to his genealogy of the fathers. In the 40th year of the reign of David, they were sought, and they were found among them capable men at Jazar Gilead. And his brethren were 2,700 able men, heads of fathers' houses, whom King David made officials over the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh for every matter pertaining to God and the affairs of the king. Now, here in the final verses uh, of our text tonight, we find Ezra. He's describing the way in which King David began to appoint officials and judges who could help to make sure that the people of God were paying their taxes and paying their tithes. 
I like the way that uh, Matthew Henry uh, explained it when, when he described the duties of these leaders by, by telling us that they, that they took care both of God's tithes and the king's taxes, punished offenses committed immediately against God and his honor and those against the government and the public peace, guarded both against idolatry and against injustice, and took care to put the laws in execution against both. Or simply put, listen, these officials and these judges that are mentioned here in these verses, they were actually tasked with the goal of going out and making sure that every Israelite actually paid their taxes as well as their tithes. And listen, those who failed to pay their fair share of taxes and tithes, these judges would punish them according to the law. Now, in order to understand how the Lord felt uh, about the, the Israelites who were failing to present their tithes uh, according to the law, I just want to consider something that the Lord revealed to the prophet Malachi. It's Malachi chapter 3, where God asks this. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even this whole nation. According to the Lord, the Israelite who failed to pay their tithes was actually guilty of robbing God. That's the way God put it. He's saying, you robbed me. You took from me what doesn't belong to you. And with that being the case, David raised up 4,400 officials and judges who would then travel the land and enforce the laws that pertain to the tithe as well as to the taxes. It's also interesting to note that David raised up 1,700 able men to oversee the west side of the Jordan, and the rest of the 44,000 were sent to the east side of the Jordan River. That's right, the, the, the lion's share of these guys actually went across to the Transjordan side to, to oversee the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Now, think about that for a moment. David raises up 1,700 officials to oversee the Israelites living within the land of promise. And then he raised up 2,700 officials uh, to go and judge and enforce the law on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, in light of this, I can't help but to wonder, uh, why, did they, why did David need more for the other side of the river? Because it's the east side, that's why. Bunch of east siders, you know. I'm an east sider, so I, you know, that's me. But... Uh, I, you know, I can't help but to wonder if the Israelites who were living on the other side of the river were more inclined to ignore these laws. Were they more inclined to ignore these laws about taxes and tithes? And if so, was it because they weren't really living in the land of promise? They were living in land that God had given them at their request, but it was still on the other side of the Jordan River. Is it possible that they began to think, you know, we're not really living in the land. You know, we don't have to pay the taxes, do we? We can't say for certain if that was their attitude, but if I know anything about human nature, I know this. Our flesh will always look for every excuse to get out of paying taxes and tithes. We will always look for any reason to not pay our taxes, any loophole that we can find, you know, any, any you know, excuse that we can make for why we shouldn't give this money away. We're going to do it. Why? Well, because we'd rather keep the money for ourselves, right? And so I can imagine that the Israelites who were living on the Transjordan side of the river were maybe using their location as one more reason to rob God of his tithes. Hey, look, we're on the other side of the river. No one's going to come looking for us. Next thing you know, 
there are 2,700 judges knocking on the door saying, where are the tithes, where are the taxes? Oh, man. You know, as we consider the way that David raised up these 4,400 officials, it's sad that these guys needed to be raised up in the first place. And yet, that's our nature, to hold on to as much money as we can. But David raised up these officials just to make sure that the people were paying their taxes, to, to make sure that they were paying their tithes. And, I, and with all that being the case, aren't we all relieved to know that the church is no longer under the law of the tithes? As far as taxes go, that's between you and the IRS. But as far as tithes go, uh, we're not under the law of the tithes. And so we don't, we're not going to send Franco to your house to come you know, kick the door down. And we're no longer under the law of the tithe. Therefore, we don't have these enforcers to, to go out and enforce a law that doesn't exist for us. At the same time, I also do, uh, do want to remind you of a point that Paul made in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's there where Paul says this. He says, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is the concept of grace giving. We don't give because we're, we're required to give. We give to the Lord because we're happy to give. Because we recognize that there's a blessing in the giving. We're under no legal obligation to give here at Calvary South Austin. And I'm not going to manipulate the scriptures to put you back under the law of the tithe as many churches do. I don't buy that at all. I would just tell you that those who give bountifully, financially speaking, are going to receive bountiful blessings from the Lord. And I'm not saying it's dollar for dollar. I don't know what the blessings of the Lord are going to be in your life. I just know what Paul says here. That those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully. Sadly, there are many Christians who fail to learn this lesson. And one reason why is due to the fact that they're still living on the fringe of the church. They're not all in. And it's easy to, to, to hold back from the Lord when we say, oh, I'm going to live on the other side of the Jordan. I'm not going to really plug all the way in. I'm not going to commit myself entirely. You know, I, I still want to do my thing. Much like the Israelites who are living on the other side of the Jordan River, there are believers who remain just beyond the border of the church. Oh, they pop in for a visit now and again. You know, they show up for church once a month, twice a month maybe. But it's constantly looking for excuses. Well, I can't because of this. Well, I can't because of that. Well, I got to go. It's always something more important. It's always something better to spend their money on. Christian, listen, if you're living your life on the fringe of our church, please trust me when I tell you it's only a matter of time until you become a believer who's completely backslidden. How do I know? I've been a full-time pastor since 2005. I've been serving in full-time ministry since 1997. I've seen it. And, and the people who don't really fully commit and, and become committed Christians in their church it slowly start sliding out until you don't see them anymore. And then a couple years go by, and then they're back. Oh, I just, uh, you know, uh, they went out into the world, and they, they, they lost their way, and they got beat up, and they're going to get serious this time, and they're serious for a month. And then it's 
Slowly but surely, other things become more important. And I've seen some Christians on a roller coaster ride in their walk with the Lord for years and years and years and years. And it's like, just plug in. <laughs> just, just go all in with the Lord. Commit entirely. Listen, the backslidden believer is the most miserable person on the planet. I guarantee it. Because they've got too much of the world in them to enjoy the Lord. But they've got too much of the Lord in them to enjoy the world. And so they don't feel comfortable at church because they still love the world. And they really don't feel comfortable in the world because they know they ought not be there. The backslidden believer is the most miserable person on the planet. Why would you want to be miserable? It doesn't make sense. I encourage you, commit your life entirely to the Lord. And the best way to do that is by investing your time and your talent and your treasure right here at church. I like the the way that Paul put it in Hebrews chapter 10. There he declares, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Christian, listen, the Lord is letting us know that those who forsake the assembly of the church are going to be miserable. And they're going to miss out on the love that we experience as we fellowship together. Therefore, we've been called to continue assembling together and all the more as we see the day approaching. Do you see the day approaching? I see the day approaching. And knowing that we find ourselves living in the last days, I encourage you, set aside those things that lead us away from the Lord. Set aside those things that would lead you back out into the world where you know, it takes a few more years for you to realize, oh, I should have never left. Set aside all those things, those things that entangle you and ensnare you and keep you trapped in worldly living. Set aside all those things and let's commit our entire life to the Lord. Let's invest our time so that we can serve God here in our church. Let's invest our talents so that we can take what we're good at and use it for the glory of God. And let's take our treasure and invest it here in our fellowship of faith so that all of this can be for the benefit of the church and for the glory of God. Let's pray.